0: Do you enjoy this podcast? If so, have you made a one-time donation or become a Patreon member? I ask because with all the episodes released since 2010, totaling millions of downloads, this show exists thanks to the generosity of around 500 people who have donated in the last seven and a half years. That's an average of just one listener per episode giving their support. Will you take today to make a difference for permaculture and this podcast? Make a one-time donation online by going to paypal.me/permaculturepodcast. If you prefer to send something in the mail, that address is The Permaculture Podcast, PO Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania 17018. Or if you prefer, you can become an ongoing Patreon supporter and receive unique rewards for your monthly contribution. Find out more and sign up today. By going to patreon.com permaculturepodcast permaculture podcast. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Oliver Gaucher, founder of the regenerative design and natural building company Abundant Edge, and host of the Abundant Edge Podcast. During this interview, we talk about natural building and designing for disasters, including the nature of and increase in these problems, the role of our ecological impacts on what is occurring. What we can do to be prepared, a better definition of what we should call a disaster, what we can do personally and systemically to bring about preventative change so we can be proactive rather than reactive, and why we need to abandon the concept of sustainability. Quite a lot to cover, but all applicable to your daily permaculture practices. Enjoy this conversation with Oliver, and I'll join you again afterward. Then Oliver... Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and then we can start talking about natural building and designing for disasters?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. I am the founder and owner of Abundant Edge, which is a regenerative design and natural building company. I have been studying permaculture and natural building for about 10 years, though I've worked a lot in industrial construction, conventional farming, even before I got into these. I've been traveling for about 13 years. I've lived all around the world, just. As it so happened uh, with my family. And I'm currently based out of Guatemala, though I work internationally as well and do design and consulting for clients all over the world.
0: And then what brought you to this world? Did you have a mentor or someone that got you interested in natural building and construction?
1: Not until later. I was always good at art when I was growing up and going to school. And I had sort of my rebellious teen years when I decided that I wanted to be good at something more practical things with more inherent value and I became obsessed with learning skills that provided necessities and made me feel useful things like producing food being able to cook which very quickly turned into how can you build a house and in research of all these different sort of practical and inherent skills I very quickly found my way into the permaculture and natural building world and eventually took an apprenticeship through the Cobb Cottage Company in order to kind of consolidate all these random skills that I had accumulated throughout my travels and a lot of different jobs that I had held. And after working through a maritime engineers union out of the West Coast, I took that apprenticeship and haven't looked back since.
0: It does sound like permaculture and natural building is a good fit for that interest and desire.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, It's one of those things where you can become useful very quickly by understanding patterns and ecosystems in nature, which applies, oddly enough, uh, just as much to designing healthy buildings and comfortable living structures, whereas once you get past the competency level in almost every area of landscape design or buildings or even social structures, you can go as far down the rabbit hole as suits your interests. So, I've really latched onto things like plasters and natural finishes and natural buildings, ecosystem restoration for climate change resilience within landscapes, and things like that.
0: And that fits very well with some of the conversations that I've had with David Holmgren, the late Toby Hemingway, and others about having kind of a background in. The design of permaculture and having an understanding of the landscape and then applying that to kind of a multiplicity of permacultures that will take that knowledge and then go back to wherever we are or whatever our skill set is and apply those ideas so that we continue to care for earth care for people and return the surplus whatever it is that we're doing
1: yeah that's very well said the patterns and the commonalities that you learn through permaculture design have an amazingly broad application of different applications, not only within landscape restoration building and some of the things that I've latched onto, but especially lately in my own podcast, I've been exploring with a lot of people who are looking to push the boundaries on where design techniques and applications can be put, such as community development, economics, even cryptocurrency, and things like that. Once you understand the basic patterns and the commonalities among these practices, There's a very, very wide reach on what you can do and what you can regenerate when you start looking at systems holistically.
0: I'd like to be able to talk about that more in depth as we get into the conversation about natural building and disaster, some of those patterns and the different things that you're seeing and able to apply. But before we head in that direction, I'd like to step back a moment to what you were saying about the Cobb Cottage Company apprenticeship. Could you tell us a bit about the Cobb Cottage Company and what that Program or offering was like.
1: Certainly, um, I think I was something of a unique case because they had not planned on offering the apprenticeship the year that I signed up, and I was the only one who did. Um, and given that my background had me traveling so much, I asked specifically if they would send me to other people in their network of teachers and technicians and specialists. So I actually only spent about uh, about one month doing an advanced cob and natural building course on their site and the rest of the majority of that year I was on different sites both in Southern California outside of Taos New Mexico and finished up my projects in Ecuador where I actually helped a small family design and get one of their own projects off the ground. I'm not sure how they've been running that program since I think they've revamped it and got some new instructors to run a bit more of a complete on-site program. But back then, they mostly just sent me bouncing around to different places within their network.
0: And that's the Cobb Cottage Company was, I don't know if he's still there, but that was Yanto Evans' work in the Pacific Northwest, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yanto Evans, Linda Smiley, and uh, Michael Smith. Now, I didn't get to work directly with Michael Smith. He's since moved on to another uh, regenerative homestead, I believe, in Northern California. But their book, their collaborative effort, The Hand Sculpted House, is how I first learned about them, and I learned such an incredible amount and learned to really think about design from a new perspective from that book. And whether or not you have a year to apprentice with them, I would recommend that book highly to anyone. Even if you're not thinking of building your own house, it gives you an idea of how to look at the ecology that you're creating within your living structure, even if it's just for small renovations and aesthetic uh, remodels in a conventional home where you already live and learning how to look at kind of sizing things for your body and bringing elements of the natural world into your own home. That book has been such an invaluable resource to me over the years and definitely informed a lot of how I interact and design for clients as well.
0: And I really appreciate that you mentioned the other members of the team because that really reminds me of a pattern language Christopher Alexander is always like the one person that gets mentioned, but there were five other co-authors on that work. And it's one of those things about being in this position, you know, Yonto's name is always the first one that comes to mind when people are talking about Cobb. So I appreciate that you recognize those other folks.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely essential. And, you know, I'd like to also mention that I work as a team with Abundant Edge, though I started and founded this company. Neil Haggerty, Jeremy Fellows and my sister, Emily Gaucher, are all essential contributors to everything that the company does as far as operations and their own skill sets and expertise. I mean, I wouldn't be able to do a fraction of of what I do for clients and the projects that we take on around this area and even around the world if it wasn't for all of their help as well. To say nothing of all the people that I've learned from and the incredible mentors that I've had along this journey.
0: That's really great to hear because I was just involved in a conversation this morning about the need to recognize those people who came before us and helped us to get to where we are because of how easy it can be to feel as if we've built something on our own without recognizing all these other people who have shared so much with us in order to get us where we are.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Over the years of trying to do things by myself, (laughs) I've realized just how much more effective it is to work as a team. And sometimes that can be hard, especially when someone travels as much the way I do. It's Not always practical to bring somebody along with you, but the way that we're able to stay connected, especially online and share resources. I mean, to say nothing of the people that I've worked directly with who have been absolutely invaluable and quite frankly, I am standing on the shoulders of giants who have uh, informed basically everything that I do. But the network, especially around the permaculture and natural building communities, is absolutely incredible. I've gotten so many good pieces of advice, free resources, points in the right direction, problem-solving help, and more than that, from the people who are constantly posting about their projects and their knowledge online for free. I mean, it's one of the most supportive communities that I've ever come across, and I feel very indebted for those people who contribute to it constantly.
0: And fortunately, because of all of that information, we as practitioners in the modern era are in a place where we can take all that information and do what many parents hope their children will do and exceed our mentors in ways that they could have never imagined.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's all I can hope to do. But it's it's really a culmination of so many different people's input, support, and help that allows me to be even the least bit effective in what I do.
0: And with this work of natural building and designing for disasters, what is natural building to you? So
1: the way that I define natural building is... Using local and minimally processed resources. Now that changes a lot depending on the ecosystem that you're interacting with. If you're in a rural area, let's say in a forest, you might have tons of lumber and maybe rocks where you are that would give you the resources that you need to build a structure. If you're in the desert, it could be clay, soil, sand, and possibly lime depending on where you happen to be. But if you're in an urban or suburban area, There's just as much likelihood that recycled and salvaged materials are the natural materials within your bioregion. And so recycling or diverting resources away from the waste stream, even if they were once heavily processed and industrially produced, in my opinion, constitutes natural building depending on what environment you're living in. And increasingly, as people move to cities and suburban areas, that is what is available to you.
0: And that's really refreshing for me because I interviewed the architect Bob Tice early on in creating the show and it's one of the things that stuck with me that he said was that there are so many great buildings that have wonderful bones that we can work to restore with all of these natural building techniques and salvaged materials without having to go out somewhere and find a piece of land to inflict ourselves upon and it's it's really Nice to hear that thought of being able to use all these materials that already exist. And I think about some folks who are using like shipping containers, both to like cut roofing panels out of or to create homes from. And all of this just stock of resources that have already been created that are these energy sinks that we can take advantage of wherever we are.
1: Yeah, I'm so in favor of that. Many people who enter into the world of natural building are passionate about lowering their ecological footprint. And depending on where you are or what living situation you're in, sometimes the best thing that you can do ecologically is not to start from scratch and build a whole new structure, no matter you know how natural the materials are that you use. Sometimes it's renovating or retrofitting an existing structure using more responsible materials and thinking about, you know, reducing the carbon footprint or the energy consumption of that structure.
0: I almost want to get into a conversation about ROI for that kind of renovation in an urban landscape. But I think that that might have to be a future conversation that we can have about the kinds of actions that someone in an urban or suburban space can take right now to improve their ecological footprint. But for this conversation today, I'd like to get your thoughts on what disasters are when you're thinking about designing for disasters and then using natural building in that context.
1: That's an excellent question, because a disaster really is a contextual event. Heavy weather patterns and things like earthquakes, volcanoes, wildfires, and whatnot are natural events, and in a lot of cases, are healthy for an ecosystem to happen every so often. And depending on where your structures are located, then they might be in an area where that happens frequently for natural reasons. But disasters as we understand them in the modern context have a lot to do with the built environment as we've designed it. So like I was saying, that these things are going to happen naturally and periodically. However, with climate change, they are becoming more severe and they're becoming more frequent. A good way to put that into context is that since 2006, it has been rare for worldwide disasters to number under 900 in any given year. Now, this is in stark contrast to the 1980s, when a terrible year might have seen a mere 500 disasters. That's a significant increase. And it's starting to take a very significant economic toll. Natural and man-made disasters caused about $306 billion of economic loss worldwide, uh, and this was in the year of 2017. That's a 63% increase on 2016's numbers, and a much higher than average compared to the last decade. And insured losses have uh, amounted to about $136 billion worldwide, which is more than double the amount that 2016 had, and that was the third highest ever on record. Now, obviously, this can be compared based on inflation to previous years, but there's no questioning the frequency and the severity uptick of what we call natural disasters. And these trends continue to go up. And it's increasingly affecting people who thought that they were in ecosystems or in areas that were immune to these types of things. I mean, just through the increase of practices such as fracking have brought small earthquakes to regions of the world that have never experienced earthquakes before. And a certain amount of this needs to be understood as a responsibility for our own ecological impact over the last couple hundred years, which is starting to culminate in a trend of natural disasters like we've never seen before. So, this really starts to hit home to people who have never really had to worry about these types of events before. And certainly, they need to be taken on a contextual basis. The wildfires in California were not caused by the same things as the hurricanes in the Caribbean or the flooding in India over the last years. However, All of our ecological impact over such a large period of time and the increased volatility of these damaged ecosystems is something that is starting to affect everyone, whether the natural disaster hits you or, in future generations, merely hits your pocketbook.
0: And what you say about context, I think, is really important because as someone who's lived next to water almost their entire life, when you get used to that and the cycles of flooding then flooding really isn't a big deal. It's not a disaster anymore because you can kind of naturally prepare for it by, you know, keeping some extra water on hand, some extra food that you know that your family's going to eat, making sure that your home is not in the floodplain even if your property may be, and taking all kinds of these little steps that are just part of your regular thought process in getting ready for that. As I imagine, some folks who are listening who live in places that get severe winter storms that you're going to have multiple forms of heat in case you get cut off from your supplies or something like that, that you have a wood stove, maybe an oil or gas furnace and other options so that you can be prepared regardless of what comes. But as climate change takes this toll, there are many, many folks, I'm sure, who have never had to think about these things before that are now being encroached upon by these changes.
1: Yeah, undoubtedly. And you made a great point in that being prepared is one of the best things that you can do, especially in the short term. But what I'm most interested in is taking a preventative approach towards natural disaster recovery. Oftentimes, just like in modern medicine, the treatment is approached from kind of an emergency standpoint. Something bad has already happened. What can we do to either repair or mitigate the damage going forward? And Also, just like in medicine, if you take care of the ecosystem and the living environment in which you are, you're going to save so much more in the long term. So we're actually at the point in a lot of places now where we have to go back and look at the damage that we've done to the surrounding area, whether it be the watershed, the ecological zone of maybe forests or grasslands that are now at risk of large fires, and Like you mentioned, one of the most common and one of the most financially damaging to any area is flooding. And that's really just a matter of the soil in a given area having been compromised to the point where it can barely hold any water. There's very little organic material in it. And the trees and the perennial crops in a given area being decimated They're no longer able to absorb the shock of a very large weather event, such as heavy rains or large snow melts, more in cold climates. And as a result, flooding is becoming more frequent and a lot stronger.
0: From what you just described, it sounds like you're taking a very holistic approach to this idea of designing for disasters and natural building.
1: Yeah, I think that's the only way that we can proceed. If it continues to be looked at as something that we have to react to after a disaster has happened, we're already at a position where it's, it's just damage control. Whereas if we take a holistic look and see what risks are continuing to encroach on a given area based on the way that we have been treating and managing the ecosystem as a whole, There's opportunities within that to not only mitigate or diminish the effect of disasters, as we call them, that happen naturally, but we can actually use many of them as events where we're accumulating fertility, water, and other resources from an event like this rather than just losing what we've built up. These can actually be net benefits to an ecosystem, but it requires much broader thinking and quite large areas of land that we have to come to a consensus in order to manage in a way to use events like this as a benefit rather than merely doing damage control.
0: And it points to some language that I've become familiar with because of my background in resource management. We would often talk about problems versus issues and that the flood and the damage that it does is the problem. That's what we need to react to in the moment when it occurs. But then there's the issue that we can be proactive about, which in this example of flooding would be doing things like landscape repair, replanting riparian buffers, controlling erosion, and things like that that then reduce the frequency of those problems by controlling them before they ever happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the overlooked things about natural disasters is a category that often doesn't get classified in the same way. And those are the slow acting types of disasters, which we're really starting to see more commonly now. I think one of the kind of popular articles that's been passed around is the fact that Cape Town in South Africa is about a month, maybe two months away from running out of water entirely. Mm -hmm. And the fact is there's about 20 other major cities around the world that are in danger of losing their water sources or their potable water sources within a couple of years. And many of them are cities in areas that get plenty of rainfall and have access to rivers and lakes. However, those sources are not necessarily being depleted, but they are being contaminated and can no longer be relied on to provide the needs of the inhabitants of these these areas. And so... Kind of when you take a step back and look at the types of disasters that happen all at once and create major damage and these slow acting ones, which are very quickly over kind of a broader timeline, rendering some of our biggest population centers around the world uninhabitable, the effect is going to be similar in the long run. These places that we've counted on as hubs for human life and commerce are very quickly being depleted of the resources required just to sustain a basic lifestyle. Things like water, access to food, transportation lines, and increasingly vulnerability to severe weather events. The approaches to helping to mitigate or even reverse the risks and the damage from these events are all kind of the same. All of them require a holistic look at the ecosystems that support these population centers. Quite frankly, when a major weather event happens in a rural area where very few people live, it doesn't get any playtime on media. It doesn't get half the attention because we're looking at you know suffering and casualties when it comes to our news day. But these events happen everywhere. And the attention mostly just gets put on these population centers. So if we broaden the definition of what a natural disaster is to include the loss of essential resources that support healthy lifestyles, this is actually happening in a lot of places that don't get hurricanes or floods or wildfires. But because they're happening more slowly, the result is going to be the same. When your city runs out of water the reaction is going to be almost the same as if it had gotten hit by a hurricane.
0: And we see a similar ongoing issue in Flint, Michigan, which is still without high-quality clean water after all this time.
1: Yeah, it's happening in various places in different contexts around the world. Water is one of the ones that people react to most quickly because you can only go three days without it. But the food supply system around the world is very quickly crumbling as I'm sure you're aware of because you speak to so many people who are working in regenerative agriculture, working tirelessly to fix this broken system. But it isn't just about producing the food, it's actually getting it to the population centers where it is most consumed. It's as
0: much of an access and a distribution issue as it is just the act of growing the
1: food. Yeah, it's one of the disheartening things about working in regenerative industries, whether it be agriculture, natural building, or, you know, any of the offshoots, is that as soon as you start to fix one of the supply chains of essential resources, you realize that even just to get it to the places where it's needed, that system is broken at a fundamental level as well. And to have an impact with your work, you actually have to subvert a system that their default operation is destruction. And this is why I kind of harp on the need to abandon the concept of sustainable development and design. Because another way of describing sustainability is to break even it's you know kind of a synonymous term that goes with the definition of that word and breaking even is all well and good if you are living in a resilient ecosystem that provides for your needs then you can break even and be fine but we're now operating from a point of such destruction and decreased capacity for life over the damage to the environment that we've done for so many decades that sustainability is no longer an option if we were to maintain our current status without doing any more destruction, we would still be operating at such a diminished capacity for life that it would never be able to sustain the population growth that we have. And, you know, redefining the goals of these types of projects by abandoning this concept of sustainability, which is another way of saying just doing less bad, you can aspire to something so much higher, so much more ambitious, which is why I always work on the term regeneration. It is a small kind of semantic difference in language that has a huge difference in intention and in the potential and goals of a project or an initiative that might be undertook.
0: And that idea of regeneration or creating regenerative systems is more in line with the ethics of permaculture when we especially look at the third because of that idea of limiting our consumption and returning a surplus. Breaking even does not in any way create a surplus.
1: No, not at all. That surplus is absolutely key when we're operating from a vantage point of diminished capacity such as we are right now.
0: In what you framed for us, the context of the large issue at hand and the disasters that arise as a result of what's occurring, what does this look like on the ground when you're designing to create resiliency against these kinds of issues?
1: The place where I live right now is a fantastic playground for pushing sort of the limits of my own creativity and understanding of ecosystems in order to make effective structures. So we're in one of the most idyllic, beautiful places in the world here on Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. And though it is an extremely idyllic location, we do have to contend with a lot of things that people would call natural disasters. We get regular earthquakes here at quite a strength as well, you know, up above six points, up to eight, quite frequently, like once or twice a year. Hurricanes pass through about every four or five years. We're actually overdue for one, and I am currently building my own house in this area. So that's factored heavily into the design. We also get a very, very heavy rainy season, which even without hurricanes can very quickly result in flash flooding. And you can see the contours in the landscape around in the valley of the small town named Sununa, where we are located. And you can read how the water flows are going to most likely interact with the landscape by the contours and the divots and the channels that have been formed from previous years. Now, some of them have been cut out by the municipality in order to divert water away from uh, higher density residential areas. But even within that, we have just over an acre of land and monitoring closely the contours, the deposits of stones... The deposits of sediment, you can get a quite accurate view about what parts of the land are going to be at most risk for different weather events. Now, obviously, this is different in any other context or ecology where you might be designing, but by looking at kind of the most severe weather events or disasters that are likely to happen, you can make a fairly educated guess about the protections and the sectors you need to deal with in order to build a structure that's going to survive not only the likely events but even the unlikely ones which are becoming increasingly likely with climate change now this of course requires a bit more of a an intellectual understanding of structural engineering and landscape design, but it's not out of reach of anybody who takes this seriously. I did not study these things in university. I've been piecing them together through my own education, and fortunately, we live in a time where information like this is free and accessible to just about anyone. And while there are tons of people way more qualified to do the engineering and the the site analysis than I am, I have, fortunately, without any... Real university training gotten to a point where I can confidently make designs and build structures with. I mean, though we call them natural building materials, these were conventional materials just a hundred years ago. Since the Industrial Revolution and the access to cheap energy, that's been the main thing that has switched us over to using things like cement and steel because they've become affordable. But Natural materials such as stone, wood, bamboo, lime, and most importantly, clay in various forms such as cob, adobe, rammed earth, bahareque, wattle, and daub, whatever, have been the default building methods for such a long period of time that you can look back into basically the archaeological findings of a region in order to make estimated guesses about what types of materials are easily locally available in your area and that have proven that they can last the test of time because archaeological sites like we have here in Guatemala with Mayan ruins and sites such as Tikal and other pyramids give a fantastic indication that this is how you can build a structure that will survive the common heavy weather events that have happened over the last, you know, 800 years. So, There are tons of resources in any given area of the world that has been inhabited by humans. If you look back far enough, you can see what people did to use the resources near them and that were affordable and realistic to work with in order to create very, very resilient structures that fit the needs and the lifestyles of those people of those times. Now, obviously, you want to amend things a little bit. I'm a big fan of indoor plumbing and Internet connections, (laughs) It's nice to be connected to the modern world. But within that context, you kind of find the points where modern lifestyles and ancient lifestyles or even, you know, not that far back, like in the town where I live, a good half of the structures here are still made out of adobe. And I give courses in how to work with clay and other natural materials and people still act surprised and unsure that these structures are going to stay up. Quite frankly, half of them are living in earthen structures, and there's still kind of an inherent distrust of building with clay again. And that's just a cultural stigma that we have to learn to get over if you want to live in higher quality buildings that have a lower ecological footprint.
0: I had similar kinds of concerns when we were starting to talk more here in central Pennsylvania, which is a relatively wet climate, about doing cob, or earthen plaster over straw bale and it was only after talking with a friend who was a civil engineer she's like oh no no no, that's easy that's that's a simple thing all you need is an overhang that is i think it's like 20 inches compared to a normal overhang which is i think 12 and like that's the only real change that you would have to make is just that good roof coverage and then the rest of that building is well protected and yet those are the kinds of things that we're not well aware of
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, many times you can have a fairly conventional looking building by modern standards, and with some minor tweaks and changes, you can have it properly engineered or protected for conventional materials or natural materials with just those minor changes. And it makes a big difference. I'm sure you know to have a structure that's primarily made of natural materials, the difference in indoor quality, both air quality, humidity control, and all of the other benefits that come from, especially working with clay, though a lot of other materials have benefits as well. A lot of them have benefits just kind of in being non-toxic as compared to industrial alternatives. But things like clay actually have health benefits, such as air filtration, humidity regulation, Positive, or sorry, negative ionic charge release, and so many more. I've really not reached the end of what clay can do.
0: And I'm really surprised by the number of materials and supplies that are becoming readily available, even at just DIY shops, using clay. My last recording studio, I was able to get a clay based paint with a natural pigment, and it just created such a warm, comfortable room, even though the colors were rather dark.
1: People are very quickly starting to catch on to the benefits of these types of materials. I mean, for a recording studio, man, if you made those walls out of clay, they'd essentially be soundproof. I recently did a renovation for a friend's home here in Guatemala because he had just clad the outside in wooden panels, and he lives close to a road where it was just far too noisy for him. He was having trouble sleeping. And we put a wattle and daub infill on those same walls and covered it with an earthen plaster. And it's not perfectly silent because he still has windows where a lot of that noise comes in. But the walls themselves are, it's like a night and day difference about how quiet that room is now. And he sleeps with no problems.
0: For someone who's listening to this, if you were going to recommend some building techniques or materials that they should look into, what are some entry points that you would suggest for people to look at for natural building within this context of common disasters like fire or flooding?
1: Yeah, in almost any natural disaster context, there are natural materials and building techniques that have a you know, hundred or thousand year track record of being able to resist or kind of mitigate what could be hitting them. So in the case of, say, the Southwest that is constantly in danger of forest fires or wildfires, if you're building with wood, no matter what the local codes and regulations tell you, you're going to have to put some sort of horrible chemical sort of flame retardant material in order to try and make that resistance to what's inevitably going to happen in your region. Or though it may be difficult to get around the coating and permitting, you could work with any kind of earthen or mineral-based wall system. And I would almost always advocate for clay because of its abundance and easiness for beginners to start working with, whereas stone can be a little bit more technical and a little bit more advanced when you're doing nice walls. All of those are entirely fireproof. You can't burn a stone. You can't burn clay. In fact, clay burns only after about, I want to say about 2,000 or 4,000 degrees in temperature. It's one or the other. I kind of forget the numbers, which is so much more resistant to heat than, say, cement. And yet people are still building with wood and cement in wildfire-prone regions. Now, the same is true in floodplains or places that are at risk of flooding from hurricanes or other major weather events. Obviously, the first thing to look at is to not site your house in a low spot in the landscape or anywhere that's, you know, specifically at risk of major water flows in heavy weather events. Prevention, like I said earlier, is worth so much more than using high-tech materials or a specific building technique. If you put your building in the wrong place, there's really only so much you can do with the construction process in order to avoid the inevitable. So siting is absolutely essential in cases like that. But You know, high foundations, keeping anything that could be damaged by water well up above the ground level, and the projected level of flooding in a worst case scenario. Because those worst case scenarios, instead of coming up every hundred years, are starting to come up every five to ten and should be looked at as nearly an basically an inevitable event coming within your lifetime. So looking ahead. And talking to people locally who have been there longer than you, who have maybe even worked in the design or the build trades. And then within those confines, within those criteria, try and find natural resources or materials because increasingly, especially in places like the United States, but often in many other countries as well, these types of building techniques and methods are experiencing a renaissance as people realize how much more cheap and available natural materials are, and with minor alterations can be made to make extremely resilient and healthy structures. But other than that, take a workshop. They're usually some sort of affordable option. I mean, obviously we offer a lot of educational opportunities where we are in Guatemala, but you don't have to necessarily fly this far. There's a huge network of instructors and teachers around the world who can get you started in you know, maybe a week or two weeks and give you the skills to at least start experimenting on your own. You can start maybe with a small structure, like a shed or a garage or a gazebo. And as you get more comfortable and get some experience working with various different types of materials, you can take on something more ambitious, like a small house, renovations to an existing structure, and from there, your options are, are completely unlimited. As you get the skills and the knowledge, you can really do whatever it is you want with it.
0: And if people would like to learn more before they dig in, are there any books or websites or anything like that that you would recommend people check out?
1: Before I give you the list of resources, I wanted to touch a little bit on kind of how this is important in the response to a natural disaster, not only in the prevention or mitigation of the effects of a disaster. In many cases, even in in things like tornadoes, wildfires, a lot of debris and perfectly useful materials are left in the wake of an event like this. And the general response is to bulldoze those sites, throw away all the material, therefore filling up another landfill, and starting from scratch and often rebuilding in exactly the same way as those structures were before the disaster hit which you know is Einstein's definition of insanity continuing to do something and expecting a different result as a natural builder i see an opportunity to salvage a ton of useful material you know it might have been somewhat damaged but there's almost always some part of a structure that's been damaged that is still useful and can be recycled and if you go into a situation like that you can see opportunity where other people see a lost cause and opening up your mind and your possibilities to what's already there and working with the resources at hand can potentially help you rebuild your life for a fraction of the cost and in a much healthier and more resilient way than before the disaster occurred. And, you know, I've consulted with people, around the world, and I'm increasingly starting to work with organizations that have taken on the task of putting in the preventative measures, but also setting up teams of people who go in after disasters and help to organize people to work with the remaining resources to help them rebuild their lives in a way that are going to be much more adapted to a severe weather event, or a fire, or an earthquake in the future. And... The possibilities that exist after a disaster to rebuild in a way that is much healthier, not only for the individuals to combat natural disasters, but for the community to come together and reorganize their priorities to include the local ecology and the environment as a whole in order to be able to be more resilient, but also to thrive in a constantly changing and increasingly erratic climactic world is enormous. And if we continue to respond to disasters in a way that simply continues to make them inevitable, we're going to get to a point where there's no longer money to rebuild in the same way we have been doing. And if we make good use of the opportunities to rebuild in a healthy, regenerative and holistic way, we can finally break out of the cycle of disasters being something that completely decimate our communities. So to get back to what your original question was, there are tons of resources out there in order to start at least getting your feet wet in some of these practices. You know, take your permaculture design certificate course. Even if you're not particularly inspired by planting a garden or growing some of your own food, the design ethics and principles can be applied to so many different things. If you're passionate about sports, Find a way to coach and organize a sports team that includes some of the permaculture principles and get creative with it. I guarantee you, you can find positive and useful applications for these design criteria to just about anything, to your small business, to a neighborhood association, to local government. So as far as like being able to see the world in a holistic design mentality... Uh, A permaculture design certificate is really a great way to get started. Natural building courses, like I said, can be found all over the world. There are tons of articles online. In fact, I'm at least 50% taught to be a professional through online forums and chat groups and podcasts such as yours. The fact that there are just so many good high-quality resources for people to get into completely destroys the excuses. If this is something that you care about and you can see the potential and the positive possibilities for your life, we live in a time when all of this is for free. So while there are tons of articles and how-to writings on our website and tons of opportunities to get involved with courses, like I said, there's no reason you would have to fly to Guatemala to do so. We are just putting together specific courses to prepare people for exactly the types of things that I was talking about.
0: With everywhere that you've taken us today, Oliver, I think that we could have probably two or three more conversations. And I certainly know that I'd like to have at least one more on retrofitting the urban environment. But with the time that we have left, is there anything else you'd like to add to this conversation for the listeners?
1: Yeah, one of my Favorite things or ideas to try and promote to people who feel powerless in in this changing economy, this changing environment, is summed up very concisely in we already have the solutions. A lot of people are waiting for some sort of silver bullet technology to solve our energy crisis, to solve our environmental crises, to sequester carbon, or whatever solution they think is most pressing. And the fact is we have all the solutions already and they are embarrassingly simple and they are embarrassingly affordable. What they don't have is enough support behind them to make change on a large scale. And this is the concept that we are trying to promote as a business and that I am incredibly passionate about as an individual. Honestly, nature has the solutions to everything that we are currently struggling with. And if we take the time and have the humility to realize that we can basically just coax our ecosystems into solving our problems for us, we'll stop waiting around and feeling disempowered, thinking that we need you know, some new machine or some incredibly intelligent computer program to solve our problems for us. Now, a lot of responsibility comes with this understanding. You actually have to put in the work. You have to take the time to educate yourself. You need to take the time to understand natural patterns and look at things from a holistic design perspective. The broader you can look at the problems, the more you can tackle them at the roots. I guess that's kind of a a broad manifesto, but I'm absolutely convinced that we can solve the crises that are looming as soon as we get out of this mindset of needing to invent something new in order to solve it. We do have the answers. You can be effective and a positive agent for change. No matter what your current skill level is, your age, your physical ability, we could use everything that you have to offer. Your gift is valuable in this attempt to turn our world back into a paradise. We're not that far from it. And the work is fun come and join us. This is a great time. I've never had more fun in my life since I started working on this stuff. And I would love to connect with anybody else who's passionate about these things too.
0: And how can people get in touch with you?
1: You can get in touch with us at AbundantEdge.com, where you can also find links in the navigation bar to our own podcast, The Abundant Edge. Through there, there's all the contact information you would need, but you can also email us directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. I'm always happy to answer listener emails or people who have questions about their own regenerative projects. And you can also post uh, any questions on the Abundant Edge Facebook page. We've got two, one for the company and one for the podcast. And we field questions there. And once a month on the Abundant Edge podcast, we run a segment called the Regenerative Roundtable, where me and the Abundant Edge team get together and answer listener questions and update people on the projects that we're currently engaged in. And it's just a lot of fun because, quite frankly, we have these conversations anyway in the evenings. So we've just started turning the microphones on and letting people get a little window into our own madness.
0: Well, thank you for all of that, Oliver, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Hey, it was absolutely my pleasure, Scott. Let's do this again sometime soon.
0: And that was Oliver Gaucher. As we mentioned there at the end about having another conversation, we did, not too long after this one was recorded, in which he sat down and interviewed me for an episode of the Abundant Edge podcast on how we can live regeneratively without abandoning society. Find that and the rest of Oliver's work at AbundantEdge.com. You'll of course find links to that and more in the resource section of the show notes. For Patreon supporters, I'm giving away a copy of the book Oliver mentioned, The Hand Sculpted House. Look for that in your feed on Wednesday, April 18th, and I'll draw the winner on Thursday, April 26th. Not a Patreon supporter, but want to enter this giveaway? Go to patreon.com slash There you can select the reward level that suits your needs and sign up today. Beyond my comments made during the interview, I have a few things that I take away from this conversation. The first of which is where Oliver said that we have the ability to solve all of our problems except for the will to get there. This is something that I've reiterated in different ways on the podcast over the years. And I'm glad to hear this from somebody else because I really do think that we have all the technology, the science and everything else to combat climate change, to develop regenerative agricultural systems and to make the world a better place. The next thing that we have to do in order to get there is just to empower ourselves, to do more work right here where we are, to create that regenerative world. For those of us who are so inclined, to get engaged in public policy and legislative work. For those of you who are organizers, to bring people together, to hold perma-blitzes and get more plants in the ground. To go out there and knock on doors and meet your neighbours and invite them into the world that you live in and that together we're working on creating. Together we can make all the difference that's needed. The second piece that stood out for me is the importance of observation and planning. Applying David Holmgren's first principle of permaculture, observe and interact, before we get started. To take the time to get a better understanding of a site and the potential issues that might arise, which gives us an opportunity to prepare for them well in advance, of anything happening. Whether it's flood, or fire. Or just planning for the way that our lives might change in the future, as we age. Or bring an elderly family member into our home. Or welcome children into our lives, through birth, adoption, or just taking care of those who need us. Finally, I liked Oliver's personal story. That he started out as an artist, but then had an interest in these ideas and ran with them, dove into something because he wanted to know more. It's a story I've heard reflected in the majority of guests who've appeared on the show over the years. In the world we currently live, these skills and interests are by no means mainstream, and so we come to these pursuits at various points in our lives, sometimes younger than others, but often starting the journey with no initial direction as we seek something different. Along the way, there are teachers, mentors, and guides to help us get there. I'm thankful that Oliver is one of them for anyone interested in natural building. Definitely get in touch with him. And of course, my door remains open for anyone who seeks an answer or their own new way forward. Get in touch. Call 717-827-6266. Email show at the permaculturepodcast.com or write the permaculture podcast. P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next conversation is with Rhonda Baird, the editor of Permaculture Design Magazine, as we sit down to look at the social side of permaculture. Until then, spend your days considering how you would respond to disasters and how you can build resilience by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.